Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 88. There seem to be three kinds of Python developers. Those unaware of type hints or have no opinion. Ones that embrace them. And others that have an allergic reaction at the mention of them. Python is famously a dynamically typed language. But there are advantages to adding type hints to your code. This week on the show, we have Luciano Hamayo to discuss his recent talk titled Type Hints protocols, and good sense. Luciano was not a fan of type hints. He's only recently come around to their potential with the introduction of protocols in PEP 544. Python has adapted a gradual type system that is optional at all levels. We discuss the advantages, pitfalls, and recent developments around type hinting in Python. We also talk about the second edition of Luciano's book, Fluent Python. He researched type hints in depth for the book, which led to his recent conference talks on the subject. He also shares his experience with adding opinionated asides to the book in a fun and unique way. CloudSmith is a secure software supply chain management tool for your Python packages and dependencies. Try CloudSmith for free at cloudsmith.com slash sign up. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Well, I want to welcome you to the show, Luciano. Thank you, Chris. We passed each other multiple times at PyCon 2021, sort of virtually in the hangout sections, you know, in the sort of post-talk conversations. One of them was uh, Wukas's FM synth talk, and then the other one was uh, oh, cool. yeah. Nina's circuit Python talk. And so I was wondering, like, are you interested in those kind of different uses of Python, like audio or uh, physical computing and so forth? Sure. Yeah, I'm always very interested in that kind of stuff. I am actually one of the co-founders of the first hackerspace in Brazil. Oh, cool. Called Garoa Hacker Club. And so we, well, we used to do before the pandemic lots of experiments of those kinds of things over there. But yeah, and there's also, there's a processing.py, which I, I've, I've delivered courses, you know, introductory courses using. I have a, a really good friend, Alexandre Villares, who is a specialist in that. That's also something that anybody who's interested in Python and art should, should, should uh, check out processing.py. Yeah, it looks cool. You were mentioning it just before we got started, and I, I brought it up here, and I'm looking through a handful of the, the tutorials um, that look really kind of fun. Yeah. I don't know. Those are the things that like get me peaked, you know, as far as like, oh, this is something I want to experiment with. Um, so that's yeah. cool. And one of the things that I always found interesting about Python is uh, really the the huge range of applications that people do with it. The only major missing piece is really mobile, right? We don't really yeah. have a very good, there's the, the Beware mm -hmm. yep. uh, collective of pro projects, but it's kind of experimental, at least it was last time I looked. And so we don't have a good solution for that. But for everything else, it's amazing 
the variety of scenarios where Python is used. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to try out some of these new things too. Like, um, I know that you know Brett Cannon's working pretty hard on trying to figure out web. Uh, what is it called? Web assembly, WASM, <laughs> as people like to pronounce it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the idea of like figuring out the core of Python and how mm-hmm. how could we implement it in just in its pure elemental thing. It kind of brought me to this conversation I had with, you know, the developers behind CircuitPython and, you know, kind of how it has to be this, I don't know, somewhat of a subset of of Python in order to fit in that memory space, mm-hmm. um, which is always kind of interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. So you had two uh, talks recently about type hints and, and protocols. And the first one was at, at PyCon us 2021 mm-hmm. that one was titled protocol the keystone of type hints and then yes the recent one you did in september was uh pycon india yes uh, 2021 and i saw the slide deck and i was like oh this looks really great and looked at, like kind of a bit of an iteration on what you were talking about at uh, pycon 2021 is, is that correct yeah well it's sort of actually two different takes okay but because uh the first one is really focused on protocols, and I called it the keystone of type hints. Because to be really honest, the people who follow me on Twitter know, I was not very happy with the introduction of static typing in Python. Mm. I, I actually couldn't identify what my major issue with it was until they actually fixed the problem about two and a half, three years later. Mm. Okay. So... Type hints came out in 2015, and in 2018, there was the PEP. I, I forgot the number, but it's about protocols. What's the one? Uh, the static duck, duck typing, PEP 544 protocols, and structural subtyping. Yeah, protocols, structural subtyping, and then in parentheses, they, they call it static duck typing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was totally the missing piece, you know, because if you have... Here's the thing. If you have a team where there is a mandate that everything must be annotated and you don't have protocols, what happens is you just turn Python into a slow version of Java, (laughs) which is really sad. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, sure. So what we what uh, so protocols was really important because then it enabled us to make annotations that make it explicit for the tools duck typing, which is not a bug, not a problem, not a weakness. On the contrary, it's a great feature of dynamic object-oriented programming languages like Smalltalk, you know, like Ruby and like Python. Right, it's got it's been around a long time, right? The, the idea of duct taping. No, it's it's the, the it's the essence of Python. You really, if you don't understand uh, duct typing, you can't figure out how Python itself works. And I, I emphasize this a lot throughout my book. Yeah. Okay. Because, for instance, what is what is iterable? What makes an object iterable is not the fact that it subclasses a specific class, although there is an abstract base class called uh, iterable. What makes an object iterable is the fact that it implements a method called dunderiter. So that's the typing. And everything in Python is built on that idea. And if we could not express that idea in uh, type hints, then there was really a big problem. And after the PEP came out and then Python 3.8 came out with the support of, you know, 
in the typing module of typing dot protocol. Then, at that point, I think the the static type system in Python became usable to express the way that we should use Python. Mm. You know, which embraces duck typing. So there's a couple of things there I want to kind of clarify a little bit for the audience if they're not familiar with the concept of duck typing. Mm-hmm. I, I like the quote that you, you've used a couple times, which is from our Alex Martelli. Yes. And he, he says, don't check whether it is a duck. Check whether it quacks like a duck or walks like a duck, yes. et cetera, depending on exactly what subset of duck-like behavior you need. I, I think that's a really great way of just explaining that whole idea that exactly. you know, it's not, not like a, a name per se. It's like, you know, what does it do and how does it uh, behave, which is cool. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. And that is not incompatible with the idea of static typing. And uh, the greatest proof, if anybody needs that, is the Go programming language. Oh, because okay. the Go programming language actually popularized the concept of static duck typing. Because the idea of interfaces in, in Go, Go has a keyword called interface, where which is uh, you, you use to declare an interface, similar to Java, but the way it's used is completely different. What our interfaces in Go are like the protocols in Python, actually the other way around, right? Because Go came out 10 years ago. So typing.protocol is very close to the idea of, of interfaces in Go. So the idea is you declare an interface somewhere, like for instance, in, in the, traditionally in Python, we, we've used words like a, a file-like object. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, there's lots of words like that in the, in the official Python documentation. A buffer-like object, there's the buffer protocol and so on. This all predates typing.protocol. And the idea of a file-like object is like a duck-like bird. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's something that is close enough for my current purposes. And usually, and often, when you talk about a file-like object, all you care about is that it has a read method that returns a string. Okay. You know, sometimes that's all it takes. And for instance, in Go, they have a, an interface called Reader, which is a very fundamental in the Go standard library. But now, the big difference between this and the way interfaces work in, in Java or the way ABCs normally are used in in Python, abstract-based classes, is that a class that you design doesn't need to declare and actually has no way of declaring that it implements reader, for instance, or the file-like interface. What it, what you do is you, do, you implement it by providing the method with the proper signature. But, but there is no explicit declaration in the class that says that it implements. Huh. And the fact is, it has a method with the correct name and the correct signature. And then both a human reader and a, a, a tool like MyPy or PyCharm and so on, they can verify that, oh, okay, so this function needs something that, that has read method that returns a string. And this thing here, it doesn't matter what's its superclasses, but this thing here provides that method, so it matches. Yeah, it says it does this thing, <laughs> so we can kind of uh, in, say. Yeah, but not not it says. I, I I like to avoid saying that. It's not that it says. Okay, it actually does. <laughs> okay, 
You know, it's because the, 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 the part of saying is like you have in Java where you say implements. Oh, okay. Right? When you declare a class. And in Python, it's when you, when you inherit, when you inherit from an ABC, then you are forced to implement the abstract methods of the ABC. And, and those, those things are explicit. But the way that duct typing works is, is more implicit. And although the Zen of Python does say that implicit, uh, explicit is better than implicit, it's actually, you know, it's not, everything is not 100% all the time. Right. Like that. And uh, the advantage of allowing this implicit thing is that it, it gives you more flexibility. For instance, when you're testing, it's much, much easier to mock something when the requirement is to implement a protocol that is that is only one method. Usually, most protocols and most interfaces in Go all, only require one method, sometimes two, rarely three or more. That's actually a good practice in terms of the definition of protocols. Protocols usually should declare one or at most two methods, rarely more. And that's the way useful protocols actually emerge from the code base. And they are not like interfaces designed by, uh, I don't know, architects in the, in the. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying that as people are working in a code base and they start to notice these repeated yes. patterns. Yes. That, that they might say, okay, yeah, let's go ahead and, and focus this down and say, yes, you know, and then that kind of relates to the, the type of naming that people use mm-hmm. for protocols where like, you know, supports uh, open or, you know, or, exactly. And, exactly. and, and that mm-hmm. is actually, you know, sort of like a verb kind of thing where it's like, it, it does this thing. Exactly. So for instance, when I was studying this subject for the book, I, I found a, a few bugs in the in type shed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, type shed is that repository that has the type hints for the Python standard library. And uh, there were some issues there that I mentioned in my talk at PyCon India. And uh, the issues were either false positives or false negatives. So false positive is when a type hint is too strict. So it raises the flag when actually there there are no problems. Ah, okay. That's a false positive. And a false negative is when the, the type hint is too open, is too lax. And then uh, it doesn't catch uh, type errors. So I found issues of both kinds. And then I contributed fixes to TypeShed by implementing protocols. And one of the protocols that I implemented, actually the one protocol that I implemented fixed the, uh, two bugs, two different bugs that had been reported. It supports less than. That's a protocol that is not in the standard library, but is, in, uh, is on TypeShed. And supports less than is a protocol that is useful for anything that has to be an element of something that will be sorted in Python. For instance, the, yeah, you know, the sorted function, it takes any iterable where the elements implement the less than method, the dunder LT method, because that's the only method that Python uses to compare items when sorting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that you found that <laughs> as you kind of, yeah. it makes me think of Brett Cannon, he's doing that whole thing of like, 
unraveling the the core python project and he's kind of looking at the c code and that you would find that in the same kind of way like just going down and and seeing that that is the first go-to of all the all the standard libraries that it was uh, supporting the the less than (laughs) yes yeah so then now i I, there's a slide in the talk that mentions that uh, after i submitted the PR with the definition for supports less than, and it's used in in a number of methods. It, it then grew. You know, they, people found other parts of the standard library that uh, where the type hints benefited from that uh, protocol. So now there are 14 different methods or functions in the standard library that use the supports less than, uh, no, yeah, supports less than protocol. So, and those those places, the annotations before were just wrong. They were either too strict, disallowing uh, functionality that was uh, sometimes even documented, and on, on the other hand, there were cases where the the typing was too lax, so it, it wouldn't catch uh, type errors. Can you give an example of like something that? that would come through uh, in those circumstances? I, I think of like strings or something, yeah. potentially. No the, the, no, the thing was the the one example where the typing was too lax was the in, with the uh, max. So the, the thing about max is that it's, it's very flexible because you can pass a, a single iterable or a, any number of arguments. And so, of course, the first thing is that the iterable must be an iterable of things that support less than, right? Okay. Or the different arguments, if you pass several arguments, must all support less than. But then there's another thing. You can also pass a key. The key optional argument, uh, keyword argument, is a function that will be used to define the criteria of comparison. And if you pass that, actually the iterables iterable items don't need to support less than anymore because then Python will use the key to compare. And then, uh, but the key function must return something that supports less than, you know? And then there's also the, a default uh, argument in the case of the max signature with the iterable. So the thing is, the max function is not difficult to use uh, I've taught Python to lots of people. Nobody ever complained uh, about Max. But the thing is, it's super hard to annotate. Yeah. And the way it was annotating, the issue that uh, Will McGugan uh, reported was that it, it was not catching when you sent in something that uh, could be none, you know, like a, a, an iterable of optional ints, meaning that some elements could be none instead of an int, then it was the type checker was allowing that instead of catching the errors. Uh, And the problem was that the original signature, which had already three overloads, so it was quite complicated, quite complicated, but not uh, strict enough to capture that kind of error. Then with the help of Jelly Zirstra, who is one of the uh, most active contributors at uh, TypeShed, I was able to write the new signature for Max, which has six overloads. Wow. And this is actually an example that I use in my talk to talk about the downsides, or the downsides, there are others. But the downtyping has a lot of benefits, but it has also 
some downsides, and one of them is complexity. So Max is not particularly difficult to understand to, and to use correctly, and even the, the documentation is not very hard. There's only one line and then three paragraphs explaining the options. But the, the annotation of it is super complicated. <laughs> Six overloads, you know, and one of the slides that I show in the talk is that I actually implemented Max in Python because Max is written in C. I, but I re-implemented it in, in Python because I wanted to step-by-step -step test all the different combinations of arguments, uh, you know, and have uh, proper unit tests and then check out, you know, use uh, MyPy to type check the arguments. And then as I evolved the, the code, that was evolving the signature and adding more overloads. And the thing is, uh, if you put together in a single source file all the definitions required for the uh, annotation of Max and the source code of Max that I wrote in, in Python, the definitions are, are 29 lines of code and the implementation is 26. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of an interesting balance. <laughs> yeah, so it's so. What does that mean? It, it means that uh, it's a clear demonstration that the, the the type system is not as expressive as Python itself, right? Right. The problem is: imagine if Python always had a very you know strict type system from the beginning, and even if well, this also requires uh, protocols to work, right? The, this example of Max. But if we had a static typing without uh, protocols from the beginning, Python would have evolved to be something very different and very and, and much closer to what Java is than to what Ruby and uh, Smalltalk are, and which are, you know, semantically the languages that look more like Python. Syntactically, Smalltalk doesn't look at all like Python, but semantically, Smalltalk and, and Ruby and Python are very close. But uh, we would be in a completely different group of languages if the history was different. Yeah, it would change the users completely too. Like just, oh, like, yeah. just like the introduction, how to get introduced to it, and and oh, yeah. totally, yeah. yes, exactly. So my talk actually. I was motivated by a, a tweet by Raymond Hettinger, who is a very prolific core developer. And he wrote, I wish we had more balanced reporting on user experiences with typing. Most public talks seem to be given by people who in, whose entire job is to make everyone in their organization use typing. <laughs> yeah. And, and so here's the thing. I understand completely the value of typing. I actually uh, you know, after I started using it with protocols and so on, I use it for my my toy programs as well as for for my professional programs. So I use it with pleasure. But I I have a certain background and, I, and a certain experience, and my background also includes a lot of experience teaching. And I know I've taught Python to people who were just learning to program, and I also taught Java. And Python is much e easier to get started with. And one of the reasons is that we don't have this formal type system. Of course, people need to understand types. Python is not a typeless language. No, right. But people need to understand types. Python, with, even without stat static typing, makes it easy to understand and use types correctly because of this fail-fast philosophy 
which I think is one of the biggest difference between uh, Python and JavaScript, because JavaScript tends to try and work with what it has. <laughs> so that means that when you retrieve an, like a, an attribute from an object and the attribute doesn't exist, what you get is undefined. You don't get an error. Hmm. You get this special value called undefined, and then later it's probably going to blow up in your face. But in a different part of the program or days later, where it's going to be much harder to debug. But Python doesn't have that philosophy, right? So if you retrieve an item using brackets in a dictionary and it's there's no such key, you get an, a key error right then. If you retrieve an attribute with dots and you don't, uh, and, well, you get an attribute error. And the same, same thing if you add a number to a string, you know, in JavaScript, there's all those gotchas. <laughs> Depends on the order, what's going to happen. Right. It's nobody knows, you know. Super hard to understand the, or to memorize the, the rules. But in Python, you just get an error. So Python allows you to understand types in a more intuitive way before you actually need to formalize them. Because the initial parts, it, and, and, the, and then there's, there's another thing. Basic uses of typing are easy. Sure. Okay. Oh, you say, oh, okay, this function returns a string. So you put this little arrow and then str, great. Right? This argument has to be an int, x uh, colon int. That's easy enough. But the problem is that it's not always easy. Right. Especially if you want to have flexibility. Exactly. Exactly. That's one of the things that I emphasize in the book. For instance, you should always strive to define the arguments that you accept, not in terms of concrete well, if you want flexibility, right? Sometimes you don't want. So sometimes you you need to solve something really quick, right? And you, you you do the simplest thing that will work. But if you want flexibility, then you should annotate your arguments, the parameters of your functions, with abstract classes or protocols that gives the user of your function more flexibility when passing arguments, right? Yeah. And, but on the other hand, to return, uh, the return type of a function usually should be very specific, not an abstract class, for instance, and usually not a protocol either, because what your function returns, first of all, you know what it returns. You should know what it returns, and you should tell the user precisely what you're returning. And if you, if you use something that is uh, too abstract, too high level, or too narrow, like a protocol is usually very narrow, then the user can't do much with that result. Sometimes they will, you will force them to do a cast to do something else. So there's all these things that you need to learn, right? About, uh, you know, so the thing is static typing is something that provides more value for professional software developers. But not everybody who uses Python is or considers themselves to be or wants to be <laughs> a professional right. software developer. We have you know, artists, like you were saying, we have physicists, we have bankers, we have all kinds of you know of analysts in different areas of domains, you know, insurance and uh, social scientists, journalists, yeah. increasingly people creating web web applications, yes. yeah, all that stuff, yeah. 
biologists, <laughs> all kinds of people who, you know, uh, who use Python. And for lots of them, typing is something that is just not worth the investment in learning it, you know. And it's actually, in a way, similar to unit testing. You know, if we are, if, if you are a professional software developer, uh, like we are, we know the value of unit testing and all, uh, all, all the testing pyramids. And we totally practice that in these kinds of environments of software engineering. Right. But do physicists who, anal who are analyzing data from a particle accelerator need unit testing? Mm. It's probably something that in many cases will just slow them down. Right. You know? It may depend if they're reusing the code like across a laboratory or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Is it that? And that's a very good distinction that you are making, because there's actually it's for us professional software developers. We think about, oh, is this code for an application, or is this for a library or framework? Right. There are different kinds of requirements, right? So, for instance, for for frameworks and libraries, then that thing that I was saying before is even more applicable about flexibility. The point of flexibility that you raised is more important when you're delivering a library or a framework than if, if it's an internal interface of an application. But there's also, there's actually a third level, which is exploratory programming. Yeah. It's people who are, who are writing code that will never be given to anybody else. <laughs> yeah, I think of the Jupyter Notebook uh, thing that... Uh, that yes, uh, exactly. The PyCharm JetBrains people did, where they like looked at all the code and they're like, most of this is unrunnable. Unrun <laughs> because you know people run Jupyter Notebooks in yeah. cells and they may do it out of mm -hmm. order or whatever and, and so forth. So it's not... Yeah, well, yeah it's well, experimental. Yeah. yeah, of course. It's, that's, another, that's another problem of Jupyter Notebook that's I think, I don't know if there are good solutions to that. Right. I think the Jupyter Notebook should have a, a, config, a, a configuration setting that would not save if it doesn't run from top to bottom. <laughs> sure. Without generating right. an error. Or it should be like a flag know? or something that says uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> experimental. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I, I always try to remember to do that, you know, when I'm, I'm saving a, a Jupyter Notebook to reset and run all the cells from top to bottom and make sure there are no errors. But anyway, so my, my worry about that issue of typing and the talks that I had seen, because uh, when Raymond tweeted that, uh, I had already watched in preparation for my book, I think eight or nine separate talks about typing. And it's interesting because the one that was least evangelical about it, if I can use that word. I mean, it was the one by Guido himself, one <laughs> at Stanford University, yeah. Okay. But the others were really, you know, so, wow, this is really a silver bullet and there's no downsides whatsoever. Yeah. But actually, there are several. And we talked about complexity and the cost that it has in learning. And sometimes, and the impact that it has on the design of APIs, maybe, you know, I, if, if typing was mandatory in Python, we certainly, I, I think we would not, would not have a 
function like max and min in the standard library because it takes six lines of annotations. <laughs> yeah. But there's other downsides. The other downside is that I, you know, Python is not the first language to have uh, gradual typing, right? This system of optional typing. And the first two that are more famous were Dart and TypeScript is the most famous one. Both of them have built-in type checkers. And I think Python should have one as well. Because the current situation is a little bit sad. If you use typing, you are always stuck in a one or two versions behind in Python. Because the, the type checkers are, are always a couple years behind. Catching up, yeah. And for instance, in the, in my book, I was doing, I did not annotate all the examples. I, because First of all, I didn't want to annotate any of the examples before the chapter that explained right. type hints. Makes sense. But also, sometimes they, I didn't think they, they added much value. Sometimes, for instance, when doing metaprogramming, metaprogramming is something that, by definition, is very difficult for a static type checker because metaprogramming is about stuff that happens at runtime, right? At runtime, you're changing the structure of a class or, you know, dynamically adding attributes or methods and things like that. And by the defini by definition, a static type, type checker does not run your program. It's just looking at the source code and it can't understand what's going to happen at runtime. Security within software supply chains has become the major focus for developer and engineering teams. CloudSmith is a software supply chain management tool that provides public, and private Python repository hosting for ultra-fast and secure delivery of your Python packages. CloudSmith is a fully compatible PyPI-like repository. With CloudSmith, you have the ability to develop your Python packages internally and privately share them with other teams across your organization. To get started with your own private Python repository, visit cloudsmith.com slash sign up for more information. Well, I, I think that part of it is like going back to his tweet is this idea of the survivor bias yeah. uh, skewing the views of yes. the use of it. And I think of, you know, people maybe not familiar with it. Or I had a, a, a kind of a nice tweet that was a follow-up recently about the World War II airplane picture that people ever use that this idea of like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that is from yes. a book that shows all these bullet holes in the plane and people say, okay, well, where should we put armor on this to, to make it so that more planes don't, don't get shot down. They go, oh, yeah. well, where all the bullet holes are. And it's like, well, actually those are all the planes that made it home. <laughs> so the, yes. the places that, <laughs> that were not holes yes. in it were ones that need more armor. Like the, you know, there were no holes in engines and there were no holes that were shown up in, in the cockpit. Yes. And it's like, so like that, you know, exactly. which is kind of a crazy concept in the, in, in the same way that you're talking about with typing for organizations that, yeah. that there is this weird, you know, these are the companies that have done it and, or have the manpower or they can have a specific person yeah. that is in charge of implementing it. But there's probably countless organizations that tried to do this and then said, meh, you know, like, is it worth the investment? Yeah. Is that kind of where you're headed? There's a, no, uh, there's a paper, I forgot the name of the paper now, but I can 
provide you the link later. But okay. there's a paper that I, I found when I was doing research and I, I, I quoted in, or I think I have a link for it in my book, but the paper is about, an, an, you know, this, the paper has like four or five uh, authors and the authors downloaded lots of, you know, hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many uh, pieces of Python code from GitHub and uh, that had type hints, hmm. and then analyze them with type checkers. And the vast majority did not type check correctly. Okay. So, and they, they actually don't have an explanation for that because they, they, they did not, it was outside of the scope of their work to interview <laughs> the teams who wrote the code. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> yeah. But that would be interesting because, so... The, the status that they found out like a year or a year and a, ha- year and a half ago was that the vast majority of open source Python projects that had type hints probably were not using an automated type checker in the, if, as part of their, you know, co- continuous integration pipeline, if they had one, because uh, there was a lot of code checked in that would not pass a type check. So they're adding it primarily as documentation. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I don't think there is a, I, I don't believe there is a lot of companies that tried type hints and gave up, hmm. but I can, I can, I can certainly imagine a lot of attrition happening because of a tendency of people and especially sometimes management of having, of wanting to have, you know, clear rules right so here's a what's clearer than saying type hints are mandatory everywhere right and uh, i think my main message is that but type hints should not be mandatory anywhere (laughs) (laughs) they should be always optional you want to strive in certain contexts like in you know people working on on a huge code base in a with uh, you know dozens or hundreds of developers, then type hints are going to help you, but they are actually going to hinder if you say they are mandatory all the time. Right. Because there are lots of downsides, and that I talk I talk about that a lot, a, a little bit in the talk and in the book a lot. You know, people should uh, come with type hints with a more relaxed attitude and a more common sense attitude. Okay, there's nothing is perfect. Yeah. Type hints are useful, but if you if you try to if you decide that everything should be annotated with type hints and pass a type checker in the strictest configuration possible, then you're going to waste a lot of time with uh, caveats, with bugs that exist, with limitations like you know things that the, the type hints can't really express, and maybe you're gonna develop, uh, you know, you're going to develop a style of Python that will not be as uh, Pythonic. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, because of those limitations. So my main takeaway is that, yes, type hints are good, but please don't make them mandatory all the time. Yeah. I I kind of wonder about two things. One, I've mentioned on the show several times, uh, why I, I did like a course at RealPython on on uh, type checking uh, based on Garana uh-huh. Yellow's uh, article that he had done, mm-hmm. and I really 
the reason I decided I wanted to do that was I would see them in other source code or I would see them in other places and in as a, a novice person to Python getting into it, I would think to myself, but that doesn't do anything. <laughs> like it's not like it's not, <laughs> you know, altering the code at runtime at all. And and so I was like, what is that? And so it was like the sort of confusion. And so I, I wonder sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, like where type checking gets introduced and you, you've kind of covered that a little bit already. Like, you know, it shouldn't be something that even in your own book that you're going to cover at the beginning of it, because it's something that y- you should, you know, understand the, the purpose of them. And so I, I think that's really kind of fascinating. And I wonder, it, mm-hmm. like, I guess your what was your background uh, getting into you know it and I, I, you mentioned already your sort of hesitation if you will to really embrace them yes what was kind of the mm-hmm. keeping you hesitant uh, to um, embracing them initially well it was the fact that they, that it uh, disallowed duct typing okay there was no way to express duct typing. Okay, and so that was the main the flip that happened for you. Okay, cool. Yes, so so that's that happened in Python three point five, three point six, three point seven, and then only in three point eight typing dot protocol was added to the standard library. Yeah, and then there was uh, tools around uh, supporting that, and that then we could use it. So I think that was uh, really the main obstacle for me. Plus, the fact that there was obviously a lot of complexity. Uh, one of the things that I put in, in, in my book, which is really, and also I think in the, in the talk is also, is uh, there are more than 22 peps about typing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, just last week, I think there was a new one. Yeah. You called it a parade of type, typing-related peps. I love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's complexity. Yeah, right. One of the things that I admire about Go, I like. I, I there's things I don't like about Go. Also, nothing is perfect, but I do admire the the, the commitment of the core developers of the inventors of Go, the three guys who created it, to keep it simple. Mm. So Go had no generics for many years. Actually, the next were. More than 10 years after the first release, the next release next year is going to be the first one with generics. And it was widely criticized because of that. But also, I know that there was a great blog post by Ken Arnold, who was one of the pioneers in Java and author of you know, the Java programming language, the official book, co-author of that book, and he wrote a blog post that I mentioned in, in my book that starts like this. There's no easy way of saying it, so I'm gonna just going to say it. Generics in Java were a disaster. <laughs> okay. And uh, this is a guy, you know, you can't say he's against Java. He, right, he's been <laughs> he was working in it. Yeah. Yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and then he explains that the problem is the simple cases are simple. It's not a problem, you know? The problem is there's always that uh, in any in any type system, uh, as you get more rigorous with the type system, there's always those areas where it becomes super complicated, you know. Yeah. And and he and you know this blog post is really illuminating. I think I'm, I need I need to tweet it again because 
What he says is the difficult cases of generics in Java are so difficult that he did not understand and was unable to explain. Another author came in and said, oh, he did a great job. But, but then he mentions a footnote that they put in the chapter of the book. I actually went out and bought the, a used copy of that particular edition of the Java programming language book to see <laughs> with my own eyes yeah. the footnotes. And the footnote was like, they talked to some computer science professors, you know, specialized in type systems, and they said, no, that's correct, that's the way it is. And so <laughs> they were happy that they didn't have to understand, but it was uh, blessed by, by, by the academics <laughs> who spent their whole life thinking about type systems. So in Go, they didn't fall for that. You know, they, they said, no, that's, that opens up a lot of complexity. So we are going to just try without it. And Java did not have generics at first either, right? It, it came out only in Java 1.5. So, but our type system, the one in Python is initially already had generics. It's only adding, you know, generics was in the first uh, PEP and then there were 20 PEPs after that one. <laughs> Yeah. Adding more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that you cover getting into the maybe the end of the talk a little bit was how type hints have very specific uses. And one of them that is kind of unsuitable is using it for checking like business rules or, or ways that things are going to sort of operate. Yes. And and that's where again we talk about that flexibility part, right? Yeah. I read some somebody some I don't know some software development writer uh, once wrote that the the experienced software developer is something that has uh, somebody who has developed thick skin. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <Right>? yeah, <laughs> we, we are thick skinned, and so one of the things that I when it's stepping back, you know, when I was uh, you know talking about. Uh, type system well, about the type Python type system to people who use Python in less you know in other contexts that are not software engineering. People you know oh, oh okay so I can say this must be a string right. Can I say it must be a string of size three because it's an airport code? Mm -hmm. No, you can't. Wow, that seems kind of trivial. Why can I? Uh, we, you can't. So okay, I can say this is an integer. Can I say it must be an integer greater than zero? Right. You know, because it's an order system. I don't want people to order zero or of something. negative and screw it up and give them a refund. Or yeah. negative, <laughs> yes. Yes. Negative, yeah. No, you can't. Can I say that the email address field must be a string, but it cannot be empty? No, you can't. So why not? Because all of these three examples that I gave have to do with the with the with the value, so there's a, a specific specific kind of type system. I think they are called dependent type system or something like that. I never studied a language that has this. I think uh, even Haskell, who is famous for his very strict and powerful type system, doesn't support it. Mm. The language that I heard about that supports it called Idris is a experiment. I don't know. It's something that uh, few people use. But the thing is, so. For things that intuitively you think you would think a type system could help, it doesn't. 
because of you know theoretical limitations on the way that type systems are you know built. That's kind of a turnoff as well. So yeah, if you want to validate business rules, you're going to have runtime checks and also yeah. unit tests because the type system is not going to be very useful for that. Yeah, it's kind of funky how it, it really is you know, finding very specific things. But as you said, all these static style type checking MyPy um, or other ones, they don't run your code. <laughs> they sort of just look at your code. Yes. <laughs> they analyze it, exactly. I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. And so, like I said, I, I think type system and uh, type hints are, are, are a good addition to Python. I just think that we should be careful about uh, evangelizing them. And uh, because even in professional software engineering contexts, it's good to have people. It's, I think it's healthy that people have the freedom to say, okay, I'm not going to annotate this particular function because I'm going to. It's going to be too complicated or whatever. Right. And it's going to add, not going to add value and so on. And I also wish that Python itself came with a bundled type checker because the current situation is a little, little bit sad of having to wait one or two years for. So you know, as I was, as I was writing the book, in the book, I did annotate many examples and that I, I presented uh, pattern matching, right? And there's a significant example with pattern matching. Actually, it's Peter Norvig's Lispy that I described to people. It's an interpreter, a Lisp interpreter in 132 lines of Python that then I annotated and then uh, used pattern matching because it's a perfect example of, of pattern matching to do language parsing. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, interpretation. Yeah. And, but the thing is that par- particular code which is a little bit tricky. I have a version of it, well, both versions, 3.9 and 3.10 of it. The 3.9 version doesn't have pattern matching. And I did those on parallel because I wanted to be able to type check, but my Pi, which was the type checker that I'm using, just crashed. Oh. Simply crashed because of the of the pattern matching syntax. So how long is it going to be? Uh, I, I've heard that that uh, the the team at Dropbox that takes care of MyPy has been reduced. I think uh, MyPy is still in the same version that it was months ago, 0.90 something. The thing is, Google also has a type checker that is supposed to be very good, but I, I, I had to pick one. I decided to pick MyPy. But it, it's also, it doesn't support the most recent versions of Python. Because the thing is, this Huge companies that use Python, the, because of the size of their code bases, they are always, yeah. you know, really catching up with the end of life of the versions. Right. So I have a friend who works at Google. He said, "Oh, we just got to three point six. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, f strings. Three point six. <laughs> yeah, and then three point seven. You know, and but so and the type checker works for them. You know, uh, because that's. So we, I, I guess pro- probably the type checkers by Microsoft, the one that's integrated into VS Code. Uh, PyWrite, right, is it called? Yes, yes. Okay. Which is actually written in JavaScript, you know? 
it's a t- TypeScript because it's a plugin for the VS Code, which is a JavaScript application. Uh, so it's the only type, Python type checker that I know about that is not, well, maybe, well, the other one is proprietary. The other one is the one by JetBrains that they use in PyCharm. Oh, okay. But that's, that's proprietary, I think. And maybe it's just, it's written in Kotlin because they use Kotlin for PyCharm and their IDEs. But anyway, may, I think those two, because they are embedded in tools, are probably uh, quicker to catch up with the most recent versions of Python because they they would you know start getting lots of complaints yeah. if they didn't. But the but MyPy, which is the best best documented of them, in my opinion, is uh, lagging. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It covers the topic we discuss in depth during this week's episode. It's titled Python Type Checking. The course is based on an article by a real Python author and former guest, Gerarna Hiela. This is one of my courses, and I take you through what are type annotations and type hints, how to add static types to code, both yours and the code of others, how to run a static type checker. In this course, we use MyPy, and then how to enforce types at runtime. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn about type checking in Python, whether you're looking at the source code of a library you have imported or trying to document your code. It can help you understand the intent of the code. And it'll also make your code work better with advanced IDEs like PyCharm or VS Code, providing code completion and suggestions. Like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, plus you get additional resources and code examples for techniques shown. All of our course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. I wanted to spend some time just to talk about the second edition of your book. I know you've mentioned it multiple times here. I guess I should mention that it's out in a pre-release format, and then it's scheduled to, to be released, or I guess in print version in April, is that right? Of 2022? Yes. I just delivered uh, last week the, the the review the reviewed manuscript. Okay, and so I'm really happy about that. It's now up to them, and I think they haven't given me a final schedule of their part. But uh, yeah, that's the current estimate. Uh, it's uh, April. Yeah, so the book is. Uh, I was very happy to be able to update it uh, for. For two reasons, because the main reason was that asyncio or asynchronous programming in general is a topic that I am very interested in, and I wrote about it in the first edition. And it was, in fact, I think the first book in print that had you know dozens and pa- dozens of pages about asyncio. But it was uh, the part of Python that changed most during those years. 2015 to now, yeah, that's a lot. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I was writing it when Python 3.4 was the latest edition, latest version. And then in Python 3.5, they added the async await keywords. So that changed the syntax and the API of uh, asyncio itself was provisional at the time. So that meant that they could change it and they did change it. 
So the, 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 the examples about asynchronous programming were broken. The only, the only examples in the whole book that did not uh, survive those years were the AsyncIO uh, examples. So I wanted to, to fix that. Yeah. And of course, I also wanted to give my contribution to this super important topic of type hints. So it also came out after that first edition. So I wrote like about 200 pages about type hints. Wow. That is all new content that was not in the first edition. Who do you consider to be the intended developer, you know, like Python developer for your book? Like what level of developer? The book is actually a book about Python for people who know Python. It evolved from a course that I used to give called Python for Pythonistas. Okay, yeah. Uh, or Python for Python developers, something like that. And so the book requires that you already know the language. I don't explain the, the basics of the language. I assume that you know what the tutorial says and that you have some experience with the language. And so it's the first book in the market that starts with the Python data model in chapter one. I explained the whole thing about the Dunder methods because I think that's really something that separates the, a beginner Python programmer from an intermediate Python programmer. Yeah. When you understand how those things work, and by the way, they are completely based on the idea of duck typing. <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing is right. based on the idea of duck typing. And then you, you have uh, a, a, a bigger understanding of Python itself as sort of a framework, which is interesting, you know, because you can, because you can easily write a class that emulates us that that works like a sequence but has some particular feature that you need right and that's that's really powerful so my book is intended for people who already know python but i don't distinguish between people who are or not professional programmers because okay uh, actually i was very happy that one of the first praises that i about my book that i read in print was by a book by Springer, you know, that publisher that publishes mostly very academic books. Okay. And it was a book about uh, machine learning with three authors who are professors. Mm. And they recommended my book for a deeper understanding of Python. Nice. So anybody who really needs to, to get deeper into Python to know how to use it better can benefit. Yeah, it sounds like it. I, 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 I'm wondering about the... Uh... The soapbox portions from the first book. Oh, or yeah. Did you keep that as a, a model in the second one? I did. Okay, <laughs> I did. It's something that I. It was kind of experimental. I never saw something like that because the idea of the soapbox is that I, I'm a very opinionated person. But sometimes when I read a technical book and the author is very opinionated, if we and I, if he and I agree, or if she and I agree, right, that's fine. But if we don't agree, then the opinions become kind of a distraction. You get, you know, irritated. You can't reply. <laughs> and right. you're trying to learn something and this guy or this this person is giving ju her, her judgments right. about this that I don't agree with. <laughs> so and then I thought, how can I be at the same time opinionated and respect the user who wants the facts, just the facts? Yeah. So I decided to have those boxes at the end of the of the chapters. That seems like a smart idea to keep it out of the, the primary text. That way you can kind of like, yes. if that person wants to like, all right, well, whatever <laughs> I can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, so they're, they're completely optional, and they actually don't even appear in the table of contents. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. What were other things that you were excited about uh, sort of rewriting in the book? You mentioned um, the async I.O. Uh, and the typing. Oh, yeah. Were there other things that you were excited yeah. about actually re uh, sort of formatting? Yeah, there was a chapter about interfaces and ABCs Okay, in the first edition that I needed to really deeply rewrite because now we had protocols and that's like a third way of doing that thing. So I, ne- I needed to rethink those. So I think this is a, an interesting chapter that uh, became interesting. I also really liked pattern matching. I, I am a big fan of the Elixir programming language. Oh, okay. And Elixir has pattern matching built in, is really a core part of the language, like Erlang, uh, which is closely related to Elixir. And uh, so I really like that feature in, in Elixir. And when I saw it came out for Python, I kind of I followed the the discussions on the Python developers mailing list. Yeah. And it was kind of worrying for me because a lot of people, there was some pushback and the whole thing is like simple in the basics, but there's some little bit of a, there's some uh, special rules and people I've seen more than one reviewer of my book commented on that because uh, it uses Python syntax in a way that's incompatible with the syntax elsewhere. Yeah. For instance, the pipe operator. The pipe operator is originally bitwise OR, but you can also overload it, and it's overloaded, for instance, in the Django ORM, like right to do the union of two queries. Yeah. Results. It's also overloaded in the sets. Yeah, 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 right. In the set class and frozen set. That it does the union as well, but it, it's used in the syntax of pattern matching, but it's not the same thing because it in, in those other examples that I gave, the use of that operator will invoke the Dunder or uh, method in the in the left hand upper uh, end. Okay, right. That's you know this. This whole thing about operate, uh, operator overloading that Python has, which is actually, I think, one of the reasons why it's successful in science and then in machine learning. But in pattern matching, it doesn't do that. It's one place where you use the pipe operator, but it will not invoke the the Dunder or method of the op- operand on the left side. Another example is you, you you can use something that looks like a you know like for instance, if I say Stir open paren x close paren. I am instantiating a new string with that x argument, right? Whatever it is, it's going to be used to build a new string if possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you write stir x in a pattern, that is not an invocation of the constructor. That's uh, actually a type assertion. You're saying that x must be a string. So it has this particular, it's a good feature. I, I, I ended up liking it after I got used to it, but it's, it has some weirdness. <laughs> yeah. The, the syntax is, uh, 
very special set of cases. And it's interesting that they were able to do that with the yes. changes to the peg parser to, to allow for that kind of functionality. It, yeah, yes, they weird. were yes, they needed that. So yeah. yeah. So pattern matching was uh was was interesting and my approach in the book is different from the other approaches of introductions to pattern matching that I saw because actually because of a circumstance, right? When the pattern matching was accepted and Python 3.10 was coming out before I was going to be able to release uh, the book, I decided that I needed to support the book, Python 3.10 in the book. So I added sections in several parts of the book mentioning new features. And that particular feature I thought was the most important one in Python 3.10. So I gave it a lot of coverage, but I gave it coverage in different parts. So for instance, in the part in that chapter about sequences, I talk about sequence patterns and just doing pattern matching where the subject is a sequence. Okay. And then in the next chapter, which is about dictionaries, I talk about dict patterns and then, and so on. So it's the coverage of pattern matching is spread throughout the book. But then at the end, there's a, a very nice example that uh, I can say that it's very nice because I didn't write it. <laughs> it's by Peter Norvig. Okay. There's his Lispy interpreter. It's a, a beauty, one of the most beautiful pieces of code I've seen in Python. And so I just explain it to, to the reader and I say, and look at this part, the eval function, which is the main function of an interpreter, rewritten in part with uh, the match case uh, statement looks really nice because it's really, you actually, I think you don't need to know Python to understand what, what's being defined in that part. It's That's cool. Almost like a, it's like a pseudocode. Yeah. Yeah. Human parsable. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The patterns look like the syntax, the, the Lisp syntax that they handle. Oh, nice. That's the, the beauty of it. Yes. Well, cool. I'm excited to, to check it out. Yes. Please do. Yeah, the, the other thing that I would like to mention is that the, the, the last part of the book is about metaprogramming, okay. which is uh, really something that's more important for people writing frameworks than applications, but I think it's a useful content. And that's one part where things got much simpler in Python. So because I was complaining about things that added complexity, and I, wa- and, and I want to acknowledge that as well. There is also improvements that happened with Python that simplified a lot. So there's no there's this new Dunder init subclass special method uh, that was introduced, which really uh, it was it's, it's in PEP 487, simpler customization of cl- class creation. So that special method pretty much eliminates the vast majority of of uses of meta classes in Python, which is nice. Because meta classes are very powerful but difficult to use correctly, but the new Dunder init subclass methods uh, does most of what people usually did with meta classes. And the other new feature that I think we should talk about is that because of the new parser, Pablo uh, Galindo Salgado and I think other core, core developers, but mainly him, are contributing because he was one of the contributors of the new parser, yeah. he is contributing lots of improvements in the error messages, which are really nice. Yeah. Because that's something that makes Python 
much easier to learn. It goes back to that thing you mentioned much earlier in the episode that we were just talking about. Exactly. So that's what that's that's what made Python so successful that now we are in, you know number one in the Tayobi. I don't know how reliable right. that is, but we are a top five language in any important ranking out there, and uh, and we did that without static typing. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, I think we need to recognize that the, the the power of Python has to do with the fact that it's approachable for beginners, right. but also powerful for professionals. And we need to keep that balance, you know? Yeah. That's, that's I think, the most important message. That whole uh, gradualness yeah. of it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, cool. So I have these weekly questions. Okay. The first one is, what are you excited about in the world of Python? Again, that could be a, a book, package, editor, event, whatever. I am really excited. I am excited about. I think pattern matching is a great feature, but it's something that does require some some study. Uh, I think the most important feature that has come out recently really is the the better uh, error messages. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. Oh, okay. So I, I've been using Fast API. Which is great, and Fast API is an example of, of another use for type hints, which is not for linting and documentation, which is essentially what type hints are for. But it's about having the, uh, dynamic runtime effects, right? Yeah. Of of that allow the framework to do runtime checks and with the arguments that are provided, and also generate the documentation of the API. So that's uh, that's a, a whole new world. And I think it's uh, very important that we keep that working as well because there was some changes in typing recently that broke that kind of usage. But uh, the steering committee, well, people raised an alarm. Yeah. And then the steering committee decided to postpone that change. Yeah, it was good. The conversation really kind of got handled. Everybody, you know, yeah. I... I I joke that there was like people on the sidelines, like, you know, trying to create some kind of fight out of it, but everybody was able to kind of work together and, and, you know, explain the concerns, which I think is great. So totally. I, yeah, I think it was a great learning experience for everyone involved. And, and the, the big learning is that this is this Python is much bigger than you and the team around you. Right. <laughs> There's people that are very different from you and I that work with Python, that use it. And so the people who created type hints were really not concerned with type with the runtime uses of it. But then it turns out they're useful for that too. And so we need to support that. And it's great yeah. that we are doing that. Yeah. So, yeah. So what is something that, you know, with all the things that you do, what, what's something that you want to learn next? So it's interesting because... I, I I like to say that I was a web developer before the Netscape IPO in 1994. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> I, I I actually wrote you know dynamic websites in Perl with CGI and that kind of early technology that existed, and things happened in my career that actually that um, made me become a back backend developer mm, okay. in the web world but i before the web i always worked a lot with highly interactive graphical applications 
immediately before the web, the success of the web, I, I, the, I worked in several commercial CD-ROM projects, you know, interactive CD-ROMs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there was that thing in the early 90s, right? And then before that, I, I, used, I worked with uh, educational software. Yeah, all those tools like Macromedia used to make. And... Exactly. I, I, I was a big user of Macromedia Director and things like that. Yeah. And now, so what I decided after this long marathon of writing this book, what I'm going to study now is something completely different. I'm going to study Flutter. Okay. Because I want to go back to the front end. I, of course, the front end in, in mobile has been has been, has been around for years, and uh, yeah, I, I could. But I, 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 it was sort sort of a turn off for me that initially you either had to you had to pick: are you going to learn this whole language or framework to do developer development for iOS, or this other language and tool for doing it for Android? Yeah, that's makes no sense to me. And then there were, you know, proprietary things or things that I kind of looked at and didn't like for doing hybrid uh, development. It kind of cross-compilation-y kind of stuff, yeah. Cross, yes, exactly. And then there was React Native, but React is, uh, React Native is, uh, requires you to use JavaScript, which I don't like. And now, you know, Flutter seems to be very promising. I, I, there's a uh, Already a, a huge uptake in the market, in my opinion. And the language is interesting. Uh, Dart is the language that is used. And it actually, one of the key advantages of Flutter over most cross-platform uh, frameworks is that it actually compiles to native ARM codes. Wow, cool. So it it doesn't uh, give Apple an opportunity to forbid, <laughs> because I don't know if you know about that, but Apple has this rule that the code to run on an app has to be either native ARM code or JavaScript. And if you choose JavaScript, you cannot uh, use your own interpreter. It has to be the one that comes with iOS. Yeah, which is called JavaScript Core is the name of the component. Okay. So, yeah. So I'm going to study Flutter and Dart because I want to try my hand at doing mobile development. And then there's also Kotlin. There's a yeah, that stuff's fun. Yeah, Kotlin is also coming out with uh, new things that are cross-platform, and Kotlin is also an interesting language that I gave a brief look at. So that's what I'm going to do. It's basically my next learnings are not driven by language, but driven by the one platform that Python doesn't serve well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I dabbled in um, Objective-C and then Swift. And uh -huh. I think mostly the idea of, you know, this computer in your pocket, what have you, the ability to, you know, the web offers some of that, the ability to show off what you've created and, and share it with other people, but to have the program, if you will, in your pocket and show it to someone and hand it to them and have them play with it is so cool. Wow. Yeah. Well, Chris, it's really great that you, that you, that you said that because uh, I wanna, I'm going to tell you how the insight came to me. I was uh, actually, I, I was 
I was working on the between the first and the second edition of Fluent Python. I I was considering uh, working on a book about Go. Yeah, and I actually started drafting the first chapter of a book about Go based on on Alan Downey's great uh, Think Python book, which is a book that teaches programming using Python. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of other books called Think This or That that derive from his uh, original work. And I actually talked to him and I said, I'm going to write Think Go. And I wanted it to be a book for, again, it's kind of a complement to Fluent Python because Fluent Python is definitely for somebody who knows how to program. And more than that, for somebody who already knows how to program in Python. But I wanted to, I, I was wanted to create content for people who are learning to program. And then so that's why I thought about this book uh, following the, the the model of Think Python from Alan Downey. But then I was actually swimming one day and thinking, you know, when I learned to program when I was 15, uh, I didn't want to, I probably would not be very motivated today if I was, uh, you know, 15 today to, to read a whole Introduction to Programming book where most of the examples just print things on the terminal. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun for a, you know, present day fifteen year olds. And so I was thinking about that while swimming, and I thought, you know what, my next book. I don't know if I'm going to write another book or or other content format. But anyway, my next content. And that I want to author is going to be for people learning to program, and it's going to be about learning to program for for you know eventually to help them do mobile development. Yeah, and so it can't be you know the the best language for that is not Python and it's not Go either, because Go also doesn't have a solution. They have some experimental stuff, but no real framework for doing uh, mobile development. I, I think there's a real need for that book um, because mm-hmm. I, I've bounced around many different tools and tutorials and other things that are out there, and, and obviously books. But I, I have, I've bounced off so many of them just in the presentation of like how they were doing it, mm-hmm. and it just yeah, it's kind of frustrating. And so I feel like. Uh, there does need to be a, kind of a new approach to how how that's done. So I'm excited to see what you might yeah. create out of that. Yeah, well, it's going to be real challenging. I know that because I, I have no illusions about uh, the difficulty of, of writing applications to run on a, on, on a cell phone. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, even though they have, you know, multiple cores and lots of RAM and so on, it's an environment that has a lot of constraints and that has a lot of, very special needs. So I I, uh, I I don't know how how long <laughs> yeah. a course that starts from scratch and leads you all the way to doing something on a on a smartphone will take, but uh, it's something that I want to try. Yeah, cool. And do. So yeah. do you have any uh last like shout outs or plugs you wanna give? And uh, also any kind of share social connection that you want to share? Yeah, so my, my last name is, is Hamalho, right? R-A-M-A-L-H-O. And my Twitter account is that last name with O-R-G because that's also my email. My email is luciano at hamalho.org. So uh, uh, Hamalho 
Hamalioorg with two O's okay. is my tw- Twitter account. And I, I tweet uh, frequently. And uh, I also have a, an- another account called Fluent Python where sometimes I post. I'm going to start posting more yeah, ramping on up. <laughs> that one because now it's ramping up yeah, for, the, for the release of the book. Yeah, and I will keep everyone posted about this new initiative. I'm really excited about uh, going back to my roots, my first 10 years as a developer of uh, interactive applications. I want, uh, I'm excited to go back to that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Luciano. It was really awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much, Chris. This was a pleasure for me and, and an honor also because I really admire the work you do at RealPython and uh, the work Dan Bader does. So thank you very much for inviting me and uh, keep up the good work. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Remember, security within your software supply chain is crucial for your organization. Visit cloudsmith.com slash sign up to build your private Python repository today. I want to thank Luciano for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.